Welcome to the Latino Business Report. This podcast covers business, people, and issues of the day from a Latino perspective. The Latino Business Report is brought to you by TAMAC, the Texas Association of Mexican-American Chambers of Commerce. TAMAC is the leading Hispanic business organization in Texas since 1975. Now for your host, J.R. Gonzalez. In September, TAMAC hosted a webinar featuring Dr. Anthony Fauci. The following is a recording of that webinar. Hello, Dr. Fauci, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? We are doing excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is J.R. Gonzalez. I'm going to be your moderator. And whenever you're ready, sir, we are ready to get started. Well, thank you very much. And uh, let me take this opportunity to thank you for giving me the opportunity to make a brief presentation to you. Uh, I've made it, you know, I know that we have people who are um, mostly involved in normal non-scientific life and others who are more scientifically bent. So I'll try to get a golden mean between the two and talk about COVID-19 and some of the public health and scientific challenges to give you a feel for what we're dealing with and really what the future might hold. Fauci, we want to thank you for not only your, your time of spending, we just have a whole lot of questions as, um, as you well know, especially when it comes to the Latino community and the minority communities of this, of this disease. But we're not gonna waste any time. We're gonna go right into it. For a man who knows, needs no introduction, of course, we just have Dr. Anthony Fauci join us. He's the director of, Nat, of the National Institute of Allergy and Infections Disease um, at the United States National Institute of Health. Uh, we're gonna start off by introducing uh, Sam Guzman, our chairman of the board for uh, a few words before we get started. Mr. Guzman. Yes, thanks um, and uh, welcome everybody. Bienvenidos. We have uh, participants from throughout the state and actually throughout the nation, state officials, city and county officials, educators, hospital personnel, community and community leaders, chambers of commerce, and most importantly, families and individuals for over a total of a thousand registrants. Uh, this is indeed a big deal. And we are most fortunate to have with us uh, what uh, is considered by everybody, the foremost expert in the field of infectious disease. As, as important as that is the fact that we trust him. People trust him. We appreciate the work that he's doing and has done and particularly in the environment that he has to do it in. Uh, we believe, we know what that environment is and we understand Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, I don't know what we would do without you. Um, I am personally a big fan and I would like to officially sign up as the chairman of the Dr. Fauci fan club. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, sir. Thank you, Mr. Guzman. Also Thank on the you. line, uh, President and CEO of TAMAC, Pauline Antone, you see her there. She'll be joining us a little bit, uh, she'll be speaking a little bit later. Uh, Dr. Fauci, the person who's going to be asking the questions after you speak is Justice Isela Triana of the Texas Court of Appeals. She's the other young lady you see on the screen and she'll be asking the questions. So Dr. Fauci, without further ado, people are anxious to hear from you, sir. I will turn it over to you. Thank you, sir. Let me uh, then just jump right into it and just very quickly go through this uh, presentation. So I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about the public health and scientific challenges and try to make it as simple as I possibly can, but not to the point where we make it so simple that we're not really understanding where we are. You know, some time ago I wrote 
an article in the Journal of the American Medical Association as a viewpoint, and I entitled it Coronavirus Infections More Than Just the Common Cold. I wasn't trying to be facetious because people don't fully appreciate that we've known a lot about coronaviruses for a very, very long period of time. So let me explain. This is what's called a phylogenetic tree. Don't be taken aback by it. It's, you know, the way scientists look at the origin of viruses. So this means that all the coronaviruses are listed here. But notice that four of those that are highlighted in yellow, interestingly, are the coronaviruses that you and I and everybody on this call experience every year. So 15 to 30% of all of the infections that are common colds that you and I get repetitively each year, 15 to 30% of them are one of those four viruses. And we often get it repetitively year after year. But then in 2002 and 2012, two coronaviruses emerged that had pandemic potential that not only gave you the common cold, but it actually could kill you. You remember the SARS outbreak of 2002 that started in China and then went to the rest of the world? SARS stands for a severe acute respiratory syndrome. It burned out by itself because of good public health measures. That virus did not have an efficient capability of spreading from person to person. Then in 2012, we had MERS or the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, another coronavirus that emerged from an animal reservoir the same way that SARS did. The animal reservoir was a bat to an intermediate host to a human. That too smoldered along. Then these are the two as shown here, the severe acute respiratory syndrome and the Middle East respiratory syndrome. Then fast forward from 2012 until now, 2020, yet again, Another coronavirus emerging from a wet market in China, again, traced to a bat and an intermediate host. This is what it looks like. It's very similar to the other coronaviruses. It has two characteristics, though, that are very, very sobering. One, it spreads incredibly efficiently from human to human. And two, it has a high degree of morbidity and mortality for certain subsets of people, which we'll get into in a moment. So what is this virus doing? This is a virus that causes COVID-19 is the name of the disease. The name of the virus is SARS coronavirus. That's a picture of it on the left. You see those little spikes that come out? That's why we call it coronavirus. Corona for being crown and virus because it's a virus, because it looks like a crown almost. That's where you get the name. What happened? It exploded upon the globe. And right now, as we speak, this was from yesterday, but now we have 32 million cases and 1 million deaths throughout the world. The United States has been hit harder than any other country in the world with almost 7 million cases and what happened last night is we crossed over the 200,000 death mark. The various shades of color in this slide indicate the intensity of infection that's actually going on per 100,000 population. 
How is this transmitted? That's how it's transmitted, through the respiratory route. That can be either from coughing or sneezing, but now we know, and this is very disturbing, that even by speaking, singing, or normal conversation, the virus can spread, which is the reason why when we talk about things that are dangerous, like being in a crowded restaurant or a gym or a bar, this slide merely shows everything on the right of that line that crosses down vertically is a risk. Everything on the other side of the line is not a big risk. So look where restaurants are with that red circle. Look where gyms and bars and even unfortunately church gatherings, particularly when they're indoor. <clears throat> One of the things we've learned, and this is again very difficult because it makes it tough to contact trace that 40 to 45% of the infections are in people who have no symptoms at all. They don't know they're infected and you don't know they're infected. In fact, you may be one of the ones that's infected and don't even know it. However, the problem becomes when an infected person who is asymptomatic spreads it to another individual. So then it becomes the silent spread which what we call community spread. And right now, there are 40,000 new infections each day throughout the United States. Some regions, states, cities, counties, are doing much better than others. But some are in danger of having those surges that we have seen in Florida, Texas, California, particularly in the South, and Arizona, and that we're now seeing in the heartland of the country. How do you prevent infection? There are five major things that everyone should be doing. Universal wearing of masks or cloth face covering. Maintaining physical distance, the six foot rule. Avoiding crowds in congregate settings. Always prefer outdoors better than indoors and frequently wash your hands. What are the clinical manifestations? Very similar to a flu-like syndrome, fever, cough, fatigue, muscle aches. However, some individuals have a curious loss of smell and taste that precedes the onset. A wide range of disease. Most people, 85%, get very mild illness. That's what confuses people because they think, well, you know, mild illness, no problem. But there are those individuals who can get moderate disease leading to severe pneumonia and critical illness requiring ventilation and deaths. Hence, the 200,000 deaths in our country. Who are the ones that are the most uh, susceptible to that? Well, even people who recover from the disease can have lingering symptoms, muscle aches, fever, fatigue, something that's called brain fog, which means a really difficulty concentrating. The people who are at increased risk for serious complications are older individuals and people of any age that have underlying medical conditions. And what are those underlying medical conditions? Obesity, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, 
So there's a lot of people in the population that have an underlying medical condition that would predispose them to a severe outcome. Also, and sadly, there's a great disparity in increased incidence of infection and increased incidence of complications among minorities, African-Americans, Latinx, American Indians, Alaskan Natives, and Pacific Islanders. Look at these statistics. They're stunning and depressing. These bars show the rate of hospitalization per 100,000 population. Take a look at Hispanic Latino, 348. Compare that to white, non-Hispanic, 75. Okay, what about therapeutics? The United States National Institutes of Health, where I work, has put together a guideline panel. It's a living document to help clinicians understand and be aware of therapies that come online after clinical trials show that they're effective. And there are a number of these that have actually been shown, particularly in late disease, like corticosteroid, dexamethasone, remdesivir, but we still need to get more therapeutics. Finally, in vaccines, that's kind of the good news story because we have made major risks, particularly financial risks, as well as the sophistication of the science to do things at a speed that in fact is not compromising safety and is not compromising scientific integrity. There are now four vaccines that are in, that are in advanced trials with as many as 60,000 people per trial. The trial that says Moderna is 30,000. The one that says Pfizer is 44,000. The one that says Janssen is 60,000. They're in phase three trials. We hope, and I think it's reasonable and I'm cautiously optimistic, that by the time we get to November or December, we will know whether the vaccines are safe and effective. I'm cautiously optimistic that they will be, but with vaccines, you never get a guarantee. You've got to do the clinical trial to prove safety and efficacy. As I said, we likely will know by November, December, it's conceivable, though unlikely, that we will know by October or earlier, but I think it's likely gonna be November, December. And since we're pre-manufacturing the vaccines in anticipation of a success. That's the risk I was saying. You're taking a financial risk. Because if it works, you've saved months. If it doesn't, what you've lost is money, government money or taxpayer money. The reason I say that is because we did think it's worth taking that risk to get vaccines to people as quickly as we possibly can. And it's extremely important that Hispanics, Latinx and other minorities get vaccinated against SARS coronavirus too, because when we show, and I believe we will show that it's safe and effective, we wanna be able to say we've proven that it in fact is safe and effective in everyone, not just whites, but Hispanic, Latinos, as well as other minorities, including African-Americans, Native Americans, et cetera. If you wanna take a look at what the opportunity to get in the trial, if you just dial into coronaviruspreventionnetwork.org, again, coronaviruspreventionnetwork.org, 
you can sign up and indicate your intention of being involved in the trial. So I will stop there and I'd be happy to answer any questions. All righty, thank you, uh, Dr. Fauci. And at this time, uh, Justice Triana, will you go ahead and take over and uh, ask Dr. Fauci those questions you've been preparing all evening for? Thank you, JR. Um, good afternoon, Dr. Fauci. I can't tell you what an honor and a privilege it is to be here talking to you about this important matter. Um, both of the physicians in my house, my mother and my brother, are green with envy that the lawyer, the judge, and the family is the one who gets to talk to you instead yeah. of so. Uh, on behalf of Texas, I want to thank you so much for everything that you've done, what you keep on doing, um, you know, to make sure that the science gets out at a time where we have such a, a, a cacophony of uh, around this subject, it is truly inspirational that we can trust you for being honest to us. So thank you so much. Um, without further ado, first question off the bat. The Hispanic population makes up about 39.6% of the COVID-19 cases in Texas, but 56% of the deaths. Do you know why this is the case? All around the board, this is the biggest discrepancy between infections and death for all races. Yeah. Well, it is likely that there are two factors. One, I think, is more important than the other. And that is the accessibility to getting into good care as quickly as you possibly can. Because when you look at access to health and health care and health systems, clearly, minority populations, including Latinx. You know, you don't like to generalize, but here's one situation when generalizing helps you to understand the nature of the problem. But something that is even more important, and that is the increased incidence of the comorbidities that are associated with a poor outcome, make it much more likely that both African-Americans and Latinx are gonna wind up having a severe outcome. And those are things like obesity, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic kidney disease, and hypertension. And those things are not genetic, Justice Triana, they're not. I think they're the social determinants of health. Because if you don't have access to good health care, including preventive health care, you can have hypertension that is unnoticed if you don't have a doctor. Or you could have diabetes that's unnoticed if you don't have a doctor. Or you could wind up being obese because you don't have access to healthy food. That where you live and the kind of employment you have and the kind of financial bracket you're in doesn't allow you to live as healthily as you possibly can. So, I want, so I just want to verify that there's no genetic component, that the data has not shown any kind of, for minorities, some kind of a, you know, nature versus nurture kind of thing that we are just predisposed because of the, you know, something in our blood, whether it's A plus, you know, A positive blood type or anything like that. No, you know, there's a study that showed that people with, O positive are less likely to get infected than those with A positive. But the difference, Justice Triana, was so small that I don't think people who are O positive should think they're protected, or people who are A positive that think they're at a really bad risk. It's almost the same, a little bit of statistical difference, but that's all. And otherwise, no genetic 
data that we have? Not that we know of. You know, maybe as we do a lot of genetic studies, someone is going to say, well, the expression of the ACE2 receptor, which is the receptor for the virus, in the nasopharynx or the lungs of minority populations is greater than in the white population. But to be honest with you, I would really be surprised if that were the case. I really do think it's, if you look at the jobs that Latinx have in society, as a demographic group, it much more likely puts them outside, in the front line, in contact with people, as opposed to what you and I are doing with a computer. So they don't have the ability to protect themselves. Number two, they don't have as good access to health care. And number three, because of their lack of access to health care, because of the fact that many of them are, quote, illegal, if you want to use that terrible term, that they're afraid to get into a system that would give them good health care. So the social determinants of health that don't lead to a healthy life are going to make them more susceptible to serious disease. I don't think you have to evoke at all any genetic difference. And I agree with you. I mean, we have a, a larger number per capita of essential workers that come from the Latinx community. And so I understand that. Uh, kind of picking on that point, let me ask you a couple of questions. So first of all, what options do those that uh, are uninsured have to get the COVID-19 testing and treatment um, you know, without having to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket, since we know that this is a, a population that doesn't have insurance? And how can the Hispanic business community help slow the spread of COVID-19, especially among, and we like to use the term undocumented instead of illegal Hispanics. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Thank you for correcting. I was trying to look at the right word, but now <laughs> I'll use the right word from now on. I, I don't consider it illegal myself, to be honest with you. It's, un, it, it's undocumented. Um, you know, what you can do is just increase the awareness, when you hear it from Latinx leaders, you know, I mean, I, I hope and I think that people trust me, but I'm still a white guy in a suit, you know, who was born in New York City. You know? We <laughs> so, won't hold that against you. <laughs> so I think that they would trust more their trusted leaders to say, you've really got to wear a mask, maintain distance, avoid crowds, wash your hands, do things outdoor more than indoor to protect themselves. Everybody's got to keep getting that message going. So um, the other thing I think it's important is that you should know at the task force, and you know, I'm a member of the task force, we've been told that when the vaccine is available, it's going to be free and no one, whether they be a Latinx an African-American or a white or anything should not get the vaccine because they don't have the money to pay for it. It should be free, period. Well, since you're talking about vaccines, let me ask you, once the FDA, because there is some anxiety about taking the vaccine for the first time. So once the FDA approves it, are you going to take the vaccine? Yep. 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 Okay. You know, I, I, I'm in, um, you know, I, I probably, because of, speaking of genetics, <laughs> My father lived until he was 97 and looked like he was 70 when, when he died. Um, I'm actually 79. So I, um, you I don't, don't look 
You do not look 79, Dr. Fauci. Well, thank you. But um, so I'm in one of those categories that I showed on the slide of old individuals. So I, I certainly, and I, I trust the FDA. I trust the CDC, despite all of the stuff you've been reading about, that they're going to be standing for science and safety. So when the vaccine is deemed to be safe and effective, I will take the vaccine and I will recommend to my family to take the vaccine. Thank you. Um, so, you know, Tamak is a organization made of business people. Um, obviously, many business owners uh, are not only concerned about the health effects, but also about the economy too. Um, how do you strike a balance um, with staying healthy without halting the economy? A great question. I believe that if the entire country acted uniformly instead of in somewhat of a dis disconcerted way, you know, up and down, disparate, uh, discombobulated, or whatever you want to call it, uh, we didn't have uniform adherence to the guidelines. Remember back when we were doing press conferences from the White House every day, we came out with the vice president's leadership in that with ways to open up America safely. And it started off, you know, with the checkpoint, um, a gateway, we called it. And then you went to phase one, phase two, phase three. So if everyone had abided by that and not jumped over, we could have opened the economy without the surges that we saw, particularly in some of the southern states. So the best way to approach this is to view public health measures as a gateway, a pathway, a roadway to opening up the economy, not an obstacle to opening the economy. Because in our divisive society, and it isn't my opinion, well, you, you have to be awake <laughs> to see what's going on in society, that we don't consider the people who are preaching a public health message as the enemy of those who want individual freedom. You know who the enemy is? The enemy is the virus. It's not the people that are trying to control the virus. So nobody wants to shut down the economy and shut down the country. Certainly I don't. But the way we're gonna open it again safely is by being careful and prudent in listening and acting according to the guidelines that we're all talking about. Do you think that Texas is opening too soon? Do you think we're right on target? Do you think we're too slow? Well, I think in the beginning, you really had a problem. I think you're doing much better right now than you were before, for sure, for sure. Okay. Um, what education can we provide to doctors to assist in reducing health disparities? You know, we had talked about some of the environmental reasons why um, maybe Latino community doesn't get health care as often, but it seems to be sometimes that um, physicians, you know, there's a disparity, and is there anything that the doctors can do to help with that? Yeah, I mean, the, the doctors as a group, uh, since there are a lot of them, they have a lot of influence through their societies, should actually make sure that they come down very heavily on having access to health care for everyone. I mean, the idea that we have so many people and disparately against the minorities not having access to health care um, 
is really one of the reasons why we have so many of the problems. So it would be almost a strong lobbying group. I mean, you can individually open yourselves to minority populations, some of which can't afford care and be generous in your access to doing that. I mean, back in the day when I was much, much younger, you know, we used to operate free clinics where doctors would volunteer for nothing <laughs> to go and just take care of people who could not afford a doctor who didn't have health insurance. So those are a lot of the things that are being done. I mean, having done it myself, I can tell you that it works. Uh, what are some of the preventative measures that people can take to boost their own immunity and to give them a better fighting chance against the virus? You know, I get asked that question a lot. It's very interesting. Because somebody asked me, do I take any vitamins? And I happen to mention, honestly, you know, I take vitamin D. The reason I take vitamin D is because I used to be deficient in vitamin D. You know, I'm kind of a nerd, so I never go out in the sun. <laughs> so I've got to go out in the sun, but I don't. So I work all the time. So my vitamin D level went down. And we know that when you have a deficiency of vitamin D, that you're more susceptible to certain infections. So I take a vitamin D supplement, not because I think it's going to boost normal immunity. I think it's going to restore immunity that might have a problem. The bottom line answer to your question, Justice, is that there aren't very many things that you can take in supplements that can boost your immunity. With all due respect to the thousands of bottles that you see in the pharmacy of this herb and that herb and the other thing, the best way to maintain your immunity, the integrity of your immune system, is healthy living. Good diet, exercise, don't smoke, don't drink too much, get plenty of rest and try to the best way you can to relieve stress. Whatever relieves stress for you, try it. This idea of taking a whole bunch of things to boost your immunity, there's no scientific evidence that it boosts normal immunity. What allows you to maintain your normal immunity is what I just said. Um, what about the flu season? So it's coming up. Um, what kind of potential conflicts should we expect and how do we mitigate it? Well, the worst scenario would be is we get a bad flu season superimposed upon a COVID-19 because when you get to the fall and the winter, a lot of things are gonna be done indoors, which means that one of the five things that I showed on one of the slides are not gonna be there, outdoors greater than indoors. So we're gonna be challenged. So having said that challenge, get a flu shot. We okay. now have ordered 200 million uh, doses of flu. Get a flu shot. Everybody six months of age or older should get a flu shot. The thing we're hoping for, and this is important, the thing we're hoping for is what happened in Australia. Because Australia has their flu season from April to the end of August. And by wearing masks, physical distancing, and avoiding crowds, the Australians, in attempt to blunt COVID-19, have successfully blunted influenza. And they've had the lowest flu season in their memory. So let's hope that with a combination of flu vaccine and good public health measures, that the same thing will happen to us. Okay, I've been told that this is my last question, even though I could talk to you for three hours. Um, do we know when we'll have the vaccine? 
and um, will it be safe for my, the minority populations to take the vaccine due to the fact that most of the trials have not been done on minorities? Okay, so we will likely know by November or December, could be a little bit early, maybe October, but very likely November, December, that we have a safe and effective vaccine. I'm cautiously optimistic that we will get there, that we will have a safe and effective vaccine. And since we pre-ordered the doses, it likely will have doses available by the end of this year. You know, that's what one of the things we're really trying to do. We are pushing to get enrollment of minorities in the trials. Right now, with Latinx, it's not as bad as African-Americans, because African-Americans, we've got to get to double digits. We already are at like 16%. And the last time I Googled, you know better than I, is that the percentage of Hispanics uh, in the population is about 17 to 18%. It used to be 16%. It's now about 18%, which means about 60 million people. So if we get 16 to 17%, of Latinx in the trial, that's not so bad. So that means we are gonna show that it's safe and effective in Latinx. So we should do our part and be part of these, these uh, uh, testing. Oh, I really recommend very strongly to, to, to be part of the vaccine trial because when it's shown to be safe and effective, the worst thing that could happen is that Latinx don't wanna take the vaccine because they say, well, you haven't proven in me that it's safe and effective. And that would be another example of depriving the Latinx population from something that would be very beneficial to them. Dr. Fauci, I cannot thank you enough for spending uh, part of your afternoon with us. Um, like I said, it's been my honor. Um, and at this time, JR, I'm gonna pass it on to you. Thank you, Dr. Fauci, once again, thank you very much. We know your time is valuable. And you look very young, sir, you don't look your age. And uh, we've asked you on this call, so we definitely trust you. We trust your opinion. And from all of us over here at Tamak, uh, when you're up there on uh, Capitol Hill talking to Congress, stick to your guns, Doc. You're doing a good job, okay? Tell thank them like you. it is. All right, thank you very much, Mr. Gonzalez. And thank you, Justice Fiona. Say, say hi to your brother and your father for me. <laughs> I will. <laughs> thank you, sir. Right, take care. Thanks an awful lot. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye.